Welcome to today's American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. My name is Scott Pryor, and I'm a professor of law at the Regent University School of Law. This semester, I'm also the American Bankruptcy Institute resident scholar. Today, we have the opportunity to talk with Professor Jack Williams from the Georgia State University College of Law and Kathy Phelps, a partner in the Los Angeles office of the law firm of Diamond McCarthy. Kathy and Jack are the co-authors of a book newly published by the ABI, The Depths of Deepening Insolvency. The book's subtitle makes its point clear, Damage Exposure for Officers, Directors, and Others. Uh, let me start, uh, Jack and Kathy, at the end of the sub- subtitle, who are some of the others from whom damages may be sought? Well, I think that the others are uh, really some of the more interesting aspects of the concept of deepening insolvency and, and what led us to call deepening insolvency the holy grail of damage liability for plaintiffs, because the others are potentially some really deep pockets. Um, they are law firms, uh, accountants, auditors, banks, financial institutions, um, anybody who might have engaged in any kind of wrongful conduct that led to the worsening of an in, the insolvent position of a corporation. Well, if it's true that uh, there's even potential liability in all of this uh, for lawyers and law firms, maybe we should back up a step and uh, ask uh, if it, either of you could tell us uh, a little bit of, of a primer, if you will, about uh, uh, corporate law. What duties do officers and directors have and to whom are they traditionally owed? Uh, certainly. If, if you think... Uh uh, kind of uh, on a macro level right now, we look at uh, uh, corporations. The interesting thing about corporations and corporate law is that the owners of the corporation are separate from the operators of the corporate assets. Uh, the owners of the corporation are uh, captured in the concept of uh, stockholder or shareholder, and the directors and officers are uh, the uh, folks that actually run the corporate affairs. And historically, uh, where the ownership of an asset and the control of the asset have been bifurcated, uh, the law has imposed fiduciary duties. Uh, This was true under admiralty and maritime law with the vessel. It was true in equity with trust law. And it ultimately became true with corporate law as well. Uh, These fiduciary duties construct a a matrix um, between the officers and directors and the shareholders who are the residual owners of the corporation. Now, keep in mind that the corporation we're talking about historically is a solvent corporation, uh, so that the residual owners would be the shareholders or equity in that case. And the duties that were imposed include a duty of care, a duty of loyalty, and a duty of good faith. A duty of care is just competence, that one should be competent in handling the affairs of the corporation. And Modernly, that means being meaningfully informed through internal and external experts. A duty of loyalty is free of conflicts of interest, uh, being disinterested. Uh, and if there is a uh, potential conflict of interest, um, affirmatively acknowledging that, and in some instances simply recusing yourself from further discussion. And the duty of good faith is um, really uh, morphed over the years. It used to be subjective, honesty, and fact. And now there's a reasonableness component as well. And the traditional view is that these directors and officers owe these duties to the corporation, which then redounds to the benefit of the residual owner or the shareholder. Well, what happens when a corporation is insolvent? Uh, does that change the uh, dynamic of the uh, of the duties we're talking about? 
it could very well uh, uh, do so. And in fact, what happens if a, a corporation is insolvent is that, by definition, um, there um, there is no positive equity for the shareholders, uh, and therefore uh, the creditors could be viewed as being the uh, the actual stakeholders uh, and the residual owners of an insolvent corporation. If that's the case, then the question that uh, gets presented is whether the directors and officers who still owe a duty to the corporation uh, nonetheless um, uh, owe that duty uh, to the corporation that redounds to the benefit of the unsecured creditors uh, or whether uh, when a corporation is insolvent, they can still look simply to the interests of uh, the shareholders as they would in the solvent setting. Well, looking at the title of the book, The Depths of Deepening Insolvency, um, what, what caused uh, the two of you to, to write this book? Well, um, you know, it really sort of uh, sprung from another book. Um, well, actually, two other works. I think one Jack was working on, one I was working on. I uh, am the co-author of the Ponzi book, which is a legal resource for unraveling Ponzi which is about an 800-page treatise on any and all legal issues that might arise in a Ponzi scheme situation. And one of the chapters in that book uh, deals with deepening insolvency issues as they have arisen in Ponzi cases. And again, who might be liable for wrongful conduct, the officers and directors, but all of the other players as well, the law firms, accountants. Um, and in, in writing that chapter in the book, and, and Jack was actually our editor on that book who assisted us, I wrote it uh, with the Honorable Stephen Rhodes, bankruptcy judge out of Michigan. And, uh, you know, we realized that there was so much more to be discussed, and, and particularly to focus on officer and director liability. And I had uh, undertaken to look at the law state by state, uh, because it is very different state by state, and to actually pull each and every legal decision out there with the words deepening and solvency in them, and to canvas the current state of affairs in, in, in each state. And so actually one of the chapters in this book uh, is that state-by-state -state analysis. And then Jack uh, contributed some of his work uh, in connection with the officer and director liability issue and law so that we could combine what we think is a pretty useful guide on the topic as it relates to officers and directors and others. Well, we've talked about the typical uh, officer and director uh, responsibilities in the case of a solvent corporation and then the dynamic when a corporation is insolvent. What does deepening insolvency mean? Either Aren't you either solvent or insolvent? Well, they, they start out, uh, a corporation is in an insolvent position and there is some type of wrongful conduct that has taken place that has prolonged the corporate life, has delayed the inevitable bankruptcy filing or, or uh, winding down of the corporation, and all the while there has been increased uh, damages. Is somebody liable for that? Should they be liable for that? How do you measure those damages, and who is the proper party to bring those claims? Those are some of the issues um, that come up when analyzing concepts. What sorts of wrongful conduct uh, could we be talking about here? Depending on what state you're in, um, <laughs> there are different uh, different analyses. Some states require actual um, fraudulent conduct. Um, others will allow a deepening insolvency claim to stand if the wrongful conduct was merely negligent. Um, but things like, for example, if an auditor 
um, either on a negligent or a fraudulent basis, prepared financial statements, audited financial statements, upon which either the company relied or the customers and, like, in a Ponzi case, the defrauded victims relied and, therefore, additional liabilities were created, could that auditor be liable for those increased damages? Now, would they be liable to the corporate entity or would they be liable to the defrauded victims is a whole other question. But that's the type of scenario that that would arise in. The, um, and to, to add to, to that and to amplify some of the confusion, um, some of the cases when they're speaking about the cause of action of deepening insolvency are actually confusing it with the uh, a measure of damages of deepening insolvency and vice versa, so that we can see that term used both from a liability perspective based on some type of wrongful conduct that Kathy has just identified across a number of different jurisdictions, or we can see that uh, concept used, that label used, to capture uh, a number of different measures of damages, assuming um, that there is uh, some other breach of duty or some other tort or uh, vehicle for uh, liability. When we're talking about uh, liability of third parties, such as auditors, uh, um, isn't there a, a normally a protection for uh, third parties when they render opinions or do services for a corporation in terms of being sued by uh, third parties, outsiders, parties with whom they're not in privity of contract? Well, that's a factual question and also state by state what the law is, but their duties could extend further if it was foreseeable that somebody else was going to rely upon their statement, for example. So it sort of depends on the facts. Yeah, I, I would echo that. Um, and uh, it, it clearly, there, or there is uh, clearly attempts um, by um, professionals uh, in the um, the insolvency context, so bankruptcy professionals and turnaround specialists and financial advisors and, and auditors that are dealing with companies in distress to uh, develop as many hurdles as they can between potential liability and where they're uh, sitting right now. Uh, but Kathy's absolutely right. It's highly fact-sensitive and jurisdictionally sensitive as well. So what I take away from that is that simply putting in a a provision in your engagement letter may not be enough to uh, insulate uh, a law firm, an auditing firm, from liability. I would imagine they probably all have that in there, yet we continue to see liability and massive settlements over this issue, so I suspect probably not. <laughs> well, that, uh, that's an interesting uh, comment there, Kathy. You talk about liability and massive settlements. Do you, based on your uh, research of the case law, have any sense of uh, how successful some of these claims uh, may be? Well, I, you know, the, the, the last chapter of, of this book actually raises this issue that deepening insolvency is, is a lightning rod for, um, for, for litigation and for uncertainty. And as soon as a deep, deepening insolvency is alleged in a complaint, um, it causes a lot of heartache for a defendant because if they lose, the, the measure of damages can be so significant it can be all of the increased liability, potentially, which can be hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases. Um, it also causes heartache for the plaintiffs, as who knows? <laughs> the law is so uncertain. You never know how a judge is going to rule. And, and part of the reason that we put this book together was because the law is really all over the map on the subject. And so can't guarantee an outcome here. 
And that level of uncertainty and fear of, of large judgment causes people to settle um, and, and causes people to settle in a big way. And so we have certainly seen a lot of settlements, and, and not only in the auditor context, certainly in the, uh, the lawyer context as well. Um, officers and directors, um, often in a lot of these cases, um, you know, certainly if they're covered by insurance, that also leads to, to settlements in big numbers. If, if their claims are not covered by insurance, those folks often don't have a lot of money. So I, I have not historically seen as big a numbers against the claims uh, in the claims against officers and directors. Right. From a settlement perspective that uh, with officers and directors, that appears to be true. Based on my experience as well, you will see settlements that typically uh, range uh, somewhere close to not much to up to the, the limits of the policy. Um, but rarely do you see um, uh, settlements well beyond that amount with the directors and officers simply because most of them don't have the ability to pay that. But Kathy's right across the board with the concerns um, that other professionals have because they can't, at this stage in the development of of the law and the damage modeling, they can't bound the uncertainty associated with the uh, with potential liability and the quantum of damages. So that forces both uh, sides to to move towards a settlement. Well, if uh, with respect to directors and officers, we're talking about really about uh, director and officer uh, liability coverage. Is there a question about coverage? Are the uh, DNO lines uh, trying to carve out uh, responsibility for uh, deepening insolvency claims, or are those a standard part of every policy? Well, we have, uh, uh, from the policy perspective, of course, we um, there's there will be you know a traditional exclusion is insured versus insured, uh, and there are attempts to assert that as well as then peri delicto defenses. Um, that exists notwithstanding the policy in most instances. Uh, but again, the policy um, issues have not, I don't think, have been uh, fully aired out in the law. And I think a lot of it has to do with the, just the great level of, of uncertainty. Uh, clearly, uh, if you were to, to talk to a um, counsel for an insurance company, they regularly will assert um, that uh, either in peri delicto or comparable defenses or the insured versus insured uh, exclusion are, are close to airtight. But they continue to settle uh, these types of causes of action, some for substantial amounts. And there are cases that have ad- addressed this issue that have uh, found um, ways in which to uh, interpret those clauses or confront those uh, equitable defenses and nonetheless conclude that, let's say, a trustee might have the ability to bring those actions, or the creditors committee on behalf of a Chapter 11 debtor may be able to bring those actions pursuant to a liquidating trust. So there's certainly um, speed bumps uh, in the process, but they haven't, with some exceptions, they haven't uh, ended the assault. And all the while, of course, if you have a burning limits policy and you know, everyone's asking for their legal fees to be covered, that, that number's constantly moving as well. I want to go back to something you had mentioned earlier, Jack, uh, confusion in the case law between deepening insolvency as a substantive claim and uh, the same thing as a measure of damages. Could you uh, clear that up for us? Sure. As, as Kathy mentioned, the, the deepening insolvency cause of action – 
requires some type of wrongful conduct, and it can run the gamut from things that are negligent or um, a dissipation of assets like uh, fraudulent transfers, even constructive fraudulent transfers, all the way to intentional fraud. Um, And that sets the liability issue up fairly nicely. But we could also have a situation where we're attempting to model damages um, that were caused by a breach of duty. Uh, fiduciary duty, that is. And the deepening insolvency uh, category of damages is a way in which you can kind of capture the the uh, harm that was proximately caused by the breach. And one of the more famous cases is out of the Third Circuit, the Lafferty case. Uh, and it identifies a number of ways in which to measure the harm uh, associated with uh, uh, deepening insolvency cases. Uh, so, you know, it begins, for example, with a loss of value. And we discuss uh, all of these measures in the book uh, itself. And that's that's actually quite unique because we both thought it was very important uh, to not only um, um, identify kind of the case law uh, and where it's going on damages, but actually walk um, folks through with a particular interest to those who might be doing damages testimony, as well as those who are proving or disproving damages in a case, the various um, techniques, including a loss in value technique, an increased uh, liability technique, um, the uh, their various balance sheets or adjusted balance sheets techniques. Um, there's a looting of corporate asset. Uh, technique. Um, And then, of course, the actual harm itself can include uh, incidental damages um, or uh, damages, uh, out-of-pocket damages um, that could include administrative fees, uh, attorney's fees in certain circumstances, uh, because the the law is very quick once upon there's a, once upon we have a determination of uh, a breach of fiduciary duty to provide a remedy um, the measure doesn't have to be done with mathematical certitude. As long as it's not speculative, then it will pass muster. Uh, and the idea here is that we want to dis- dissuade fiduciaries from acting um, uh, in the breach, if you will. And so the law has been very indulgent. Uh, where there is a uh, liability um, to consider a number of different models, and the models that are developing um, have been interesting in their own right. Uh, uh, so uh, in the book, again, what Kathy and I have attempted to do is lay all of that out, identify the various inputs and variables of the models that have been developed uh, so somebody can get a sense of not only the liability and the damages concepts, but also the inputs and variables that are necessary to develop a robust uh, damage model. And, and, and this really is, you know, as Jack explained, sort of the heart of deepening insolvency, where the numbers come from. Um, it also, though, leads into what really is probably sharpest criticism of the deepening insolvency concept, which is it's really duplicative of existing remedies. It, as, a, as an independent freestanding tort, it really is the same measure of damages that you would use for breach of fiduciary duty. So why don't we just use breach of fiduciary duty Maybe it's okay to measure the resulting damages using deepening insolvency, but should deepening insolvency really be a separate claim for relief? A lot of the states have said no because it just seems duplicative. Well, to the extent that uh, deepening insolvency is duplicative of uh, standard fiduciary duty claims, or I guess if it's not even, 
what role does the uh, the standby, uh, the business judgment rule, play in decisions by uh, officers and directors? Well, that being another sharp criticism of deepening <laughs> insolvency, you know, leave these poor officers and directors alone. They're doing the best they can. They're exercising their business judgment. That the business judgment rule should protect them from liability. And there are certainly some states, Delaware in particular, that says, oh, yeah, <laughs> we, we want people to serve as officers and directors. They're doing the best that they can. If they haven't breached some fiduciary duty, they're acting in the best interest of the corporation, and they goofed, and it led to liability. Oh, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be allowed to sue them on it. There's a, uh, of course, the counter argument to that, of course, is that your breach, breach of or your uh, business judgment rule and the concept of fiduciary duties has a long history. It's there to to protect decisions that are made by a board of directors where they're meaningfully informed and they're disinterested and they're acting in good faith. But the concern that we might have is similar to the concern we have uh, along the lines of defensive measures that a board undertakes in the hostile takeover environment, uh, where Delaware courts, for example, will apply um, an enhanced scrutiny test under the Unical case or even an auction duty under Revlon. Uh, one of the concerns you have with directors of an insolvent corporation is, in, is uh, their own self-interest and entrenchment and as management, particularly if they also happen to hold equity in the company. Um, because at that particular point in time, if they're insolvent by definition, they're out of the money. And there's a real question of whether in that context they could ever be truly disinterested. If they're interested and have not recused themselves, then the predicate for the business judgment rule in the first instance isn't met. Well, we've been talking uh, uh, occasionally about uh, the different uh, views uh, from the different states. Kathy, you have this... Uh, a complete summary up to date of uh, the decisions in uh, all of the states that have decisions. Are there any trends? Do we see directions go that uh, some states uh, have uh, completely rejected deepening insolvency? Some states have recognized it. Some states have recognized it and then retreated. And well, can you give us a quick uh, summary, not of every fifth, all fifty states, but uh, sort of uh, where will we see a variety among the states? Well. Um Certainly, the states are all moving in different directions, and even within a state, you can see some, some bumps in the road. Um, you know, Delaware has probably come out the strongest and said, no, thank you. <laughs> We're not going to recognize that, as have a bunch of other states. And there are some states that um, really, at the, at the lower court level, if, they, if the, the Supreme Court has not yet spoken in that state, are guessing <laughs> as to what their Supreme Court, well, we think that our Supreme Court is going to say, you know, permit a, a claim or not. And I, I find these cases fascinating because they seem very fact and judge-driven to me. You know, if, if there's a judge who really wants to find the defendant liable, they seem more inclined to predict that their state Supreme Court is actually going to recognize a deepening insolvency uh, tort. So, you know, I, I, in terms of trends, I... I look for them. I think about it a lot. Um, you know, if I had to pick a direction it was going, I would say it's trending down that more and more states say, no, we don't think this is an independent claim for relief. Um, I do think that there are still plenty of, of courts and people out there who are pushing for it and some states that are still recognizing it. I think it is more frequently used as a measure of damages, which it's a valuable way to think about damages. Um, and so I, I don't personally don't think that there's anything wrong with that, whether 
the underlying claim for relief is breach of fiduciary duty or something else, you know, is another question. And as Kathy pointed out, um, uh, Scott, it, it's often duplicative as a as a uh, means of liability, as a cause of action. But I think uh, Kathy's right, and I would agree with her. It's a very convenient and meta, at least at the very least, metaphorical way of looking at the types of damages that can be caused uh, by directors who are breaching their fiduciary duties in the insolvent uh, insolvency context. Well, what difference does this all make when we go from uh, you know state law and state or federal forums to the the bankruptcy forum? In other words, does the uh, debtor in possession, the trustee appointed in a Chapter 11 case or a liquidating trustee or a creditors committee, who has standing to, to bring these bring these sorts of cases? Well, there, there's a whole chapter in the book on that subject as well, because once again, um, there's not a, an overly fine line on that subject, um, and the courts go in a lot of different directions. The general rule is that a trustee or, or even a receiver uh, in district court is going to have standing to pursue claims where there was a harm to the corporate entity as opposed to harm to an individual creditor. Um, now, that line is really blurred, blurred sometimes in cases. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example, and uh, I've seen judges just really struggle with this. If you have, uh, let's say, I'll go back to my earlier example, an auditor who's prepared a false financial statement and as a result... $10 million of investors invested money into the entity. The entity went bankrupt. A trustee got appointed. That trustee wants to sue for the $10 million of liability that his corporate debtor is stuck with. Well, the individual investor says, but it was my money and it was me that was relying upon that false financial statement, so I should be the one to be able to pursue it. I've even seen one judge say, well, you know what, both of you go ahead. You know, they can't, it can't be double recovery, but, you know, I don't know. So the, the cases are a bit... Um, confused and it's a bit problematic. There are certainly general rules, um, but they are subject to interpretation and, and the facts in these various cases. And I think that, uh, I think Kathy hit the nail on the head. I've, I'm sure she recalls that uh, Judge Rose, uh, she, Judge Rose, and I got together in, in uh, uh, the beautiful Pepperdine campus, and we we started talking about this very book um, and just about every topic, we looked at each other we, and said, "You know, you could uh, you could write a chapter on that." Uh, and I think that's what ultimately led to the writing of this book. We uh, identified a half dozen chapters right off the top of our head, just talking about the typical case that um, that uh, Kathy has introduced in our discussions today. Are there uh, disputes or disagreements uh, among the, the courts in different states over the very definition of insolvency and deepening insolvency? In other words, is it a uh, pure balance sheet test, is it adjusted balance sheet, and then how do you make adjustments if that's what it is? Yeah, the, the insolvency issue um, is a state law question, although we're, we're typically comfortable uh, looking at Section 10132 of the Bankruptcy Code or other measures of financial distress like inadequate capital or inability to pay under Section 548, this cause of action is a state law cause of action. Um, and we look to state law, and the state law differences on insolvency um, can be interesting. Uh, the general rules or principles are pretty uniform, although there are some variations, let's say, between Delaware and New York. Um, uh, 
uh, but uh, the uh, the actual proof issues and and your use of experts and proving these up uh, can be different. How you handle, for example, uh, contingent assets uh, on the one hand or contingent liabilities on the other hand, if the jurisdiction decides that the best approach. Uh, for the determination as an adjusted balance sheet uh, does vary. Uh, and likewise, some jurisdictions uh, will reject a balance sheet approach and, or at least uh, discount it significantly and instead focus on uh, an ability to pay debts as they become due or generally paying their debts as they become due. So although um, we can still use, uh, at least in the first instances, the various tests that are um, embedded throughout the bankruptcy code, Ultimately, counsel and their experts have to be intimately aware of what the appropriate uh, applicable non-bankruptcy law test is and how various adjustments or assumptions, which are very common in the bankruptcy context, might play out under state law. Kathy, I remember you uh, saying that uh, the uh, courts in Delaware have uh, pretty well shut the door on claims arising out of a deepening insolvency. Uh, Could you fill us in a little bit on that? Well, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the um, Chancery Court there said, no, uh, we're not going to recognize that as, as an independent claim for relief. That was in the Trenwick case. Uh, you know, since then, that's the, there have, of course, been a whole bunch of decisions since then, um, but they're pretty much all saying, no, you know, we're not going to recognize that kind of a well, if that's the case, uh, have you been able to determine, if only anecdotally, whether this sort of uh, protection, additional protection for uh, officers, directors, and presumably third parties dealing with the corporation, uh, advisors and the like, whether there's been any additional incentive to uh, incorporate in Delaware because of these protections? Hmm. Well, I, you know, I don't think that that, that ruling eliminates damage exposure for officers and directors if they've really done something wrong. Um, you know, it may be a more uh, favorable venue for other reasons. Um, I personally haven't heard or seen that, although it wouldn't surprise me, but I, I do tend to think that, you know, people like to find any reason to end up in Delaware, so it may be another one to add to the list. Right, and I think that, uh, you know, particularly in in uh, the corp- the incorporation step itself, uh, deepening insolvency is probably way down the list if it makes the list at all uh, on reasons why you might choose Delaware over, let's say, New York or California for purposes of incorporating your uh, your business. And I have not, at least anecdotally, seen any uh, changes when you're uh, insolvent or um, in that vicinity uh, where um, where the incorporate where the state of incorporation has been changed. So I haven't seen that as an, as an act yet um, in preparation of, uh, of a bankruptcy filing, although it is a common act in preparation of various types of mergers and acquisitions. Have we seen yet uh, any evidence of uh, deepening insolvency claims with respect to uh, newer forms of uh, business entities such as uh, LLCs? I think that's just a, that's a great question um, because the um, you know the LLC um, uh, which is a hybrid um, corporate slash partnership model has much of the freedoms of 
of partnership as far as freedom of contract is is concerned, particularly in a member-managed LLC, uh, but has uh, limited liability and uh, life in perpetuity. Uh, on the corporate side, it has uh, at least the the ability to elect for usually more favorable pass-through treatment for federal tax income tax purposes. So we're clearly seeing a lot more LLCs. And with that flexibility, um, there's a, a threshold question of whether fiduciary duties apply in an LLC context. Uh, I think most jurisdictions, and by the way, the, the, um, the act itself, the Uniform Act, uh, doesn't address the issue directly. I think in most jurisdictions, the courts are either holding or intimating, but not all jurisdictions, holding or intimating that the fiduciary duties that we see in the corporate context uh, exist in the LLC context. In some jurisdictions, it's the default rule, so they could be overridden by a, a provision in the operating agreement to the contrary. In some jurisdictions, the courts have suggested that absent more explicit legislative action, they're just going to read in um, uh, fiduciary duties, even in the LLC context. Um, so we have a gating issue um, that we have to address in the LLC context. And once you're there, there's a greater freedom of, uh, of, of movement among uh, certainly member-managed LLCs that you wouldn't see in the, in the typical corporate context. So we're still... Um, we'll, we'll still be fleshing that issue out as um, fiduciary duties uh, themselves are developing in the LLC context. And Jack, I think that that is absolutely right um, in the context of office directors. What's particularly interesting about deepening insolvency, though, extends beyond officers and directors, and I don't know that there would really be any type of a distinction as to whether the entity that was harmed by the wrongful conduct of a third party a bank or, or a law firm or, or whatever, um, I don't think there would be a distinction whether that entity was an LLC or a corporation. I think that that third party would have an equal amount of liability in either scenario. Uh, based on uh, your review of the, uh, the case law, Kathy, what can you tell us about the uh, likelihood of success or at least being able to state a claim against different sorts of defendants, uh, corporate folk, office directors versus outsiders, banks, attorneys, accountants, and the like? Well, you know, once again, I've, I've said this a few too many times, the law is sort of all over the map on that subject. Um, one thing that we did do in this book, um, which we, we hoped to be a real useful guide to people on, on both sides of the fence, plaintiffs and defendants, is we outlined the state of the law as it applies to a particular type of defendant, whether it's a lender or a law firm or an accountant or advisor, and we broke it into here's where a claim was stated against that particular type of defendant, here's where a claim wasn't stated. So we thought that that would be a particularly useful tool. And uh, let me, let's end with this then to get each of your predictions for the future. Uh, if we would have the same conversation, uh, let's say five years from now, uh, what do you anticipate the state of the law of deepening insolvency to look like? I see it moving extremely slowly. Um, I, I actually have my alerts up to get every case that comes out with the words deepening insolvency in them, and there are not many. Uh, so I think uh, I, I, I see uh, plaintiffs getting a little nervous in alleging deepening insolvency because it is a little bit of a lightning rod, and it may just increase litigation costs because you know, it's bringing on a fight. So it may be that people by themselves start to steer clear of, of alleging deepening insolvency. 
as a as a tort anyway. Um, I, I can't predict which way the courts will go because once again I I, I see it uh, subject to the, the discretion of the judge who may or may not want to rule a particular way and then find a way to get there. So unless the law is really fixed in a particular state, I think it's still up for grabs. Yeah, and I think the um, um, I, I think it, it the the causes of action. Uh, at least that are formally assertive, has slowed down. It's hard to tell what's happening uh, under the water um, as far as settlements and, uh, and uh, you know, the uh, threat of asserting these causes of action. But I think doctrinally with the right case, and I think that we'll see the right case in five years, a non-redundant um, cause of action or harm caused by uh, the classic deepening insolvency facts, I think it's going to appear... And I think it's going to appear in Delaware, and I think Delaware is going to revisit its decision um, because I think Delaware has to deal ultimately with conflicting theories on officer and director uh, action and on um, the role of the business judgment rule. Uh, and I think ultimately with the right case where it can't simply dodge it as being redundant um, and the right set of facts, Delaware is going to have to either take a very strong stance against it um, and uh, pollute other areas of the law that it has developed in the, in the solvency context, or it's going to have to begrudgingly recognize at least some variant of the uh, deepening insolvency cause of action. Well, with that, I guess all I can say is that uh, we'll stay tuned, and uh, if we see any developments, maybe someday there will be a second edition of The Depths of Deepening Insolvency. I'm sure I'm speaking for Kathy, too. I, you know, um, for those who are interested in writing books and writing books for the ABI, we'd strongly recommend it. It was a relatively painless process. And they have an excellent staff and just a great um, uh, arts department. I, I, I know Kathy has already expressed this uh, to many people, but we, we love the book. We love the cover. We loved working with the ABI, and we would strongly recommend um, that folks that might be interested in writing something give it a try. Yes, I agree. Well, that's, that's good to hear. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you. Uh, until our next podcast, this is Scott Pryor on behalf of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Mm-hmm.